0: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church.
1: This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, Jen and JT. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Kyle. Hey, hey, it's good to see y'all. Uh, and today we're also joined by pastor and author, Dr. Gavin Ortland. Dr. Ortland is the author of Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. Uh, he's the author of Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals and in another book, Finding the Right Hills to Die on, The Case for Theological Triage. Uh, he's also a pastor in, I am going i don't want to butcher the name of this city in, in beautiful California, Ojai, California. Did I get this right?
2: You got it. You got it exactly. That's the number one question I get asked in, in podcasts. But And you nailed this, it. It's how to say oh hi. That's right.
0: Kyle likes to be really careful with how he says place names. So <laughs> I'm glad you cleared that up, Kyle.
1: Yeah, I've, uh, Gavin, some of my my biggest uh, uh, pitfalls and most humorous moments have come on the show <laughs> by confidently mispronouncing uh, uh, specific names of biblical places. And so uh, specifically in the Genesis narrative. So anyways, hey. <laughs> Uh, We're really glad to have you on the show. And uh, also, if if you're looking for, like, maybe what's the most accessible way, if you're on your phone, right, when you get done listening to this podcast, you should go over to YouTube and check out Truth Unites as well, which is where Gavin is doing some video blogging with some incredible, like, guests coming on and covering really helpful, really cool topics. And so he didn't ask me to promote that, but the content is really good. And if you like digital media and kind of doing some equipping along that, You should go check that out. But he's got a number of books. And today we're really going to be talking through Theological Triage, which is factored in to the names of one of his many books uh, and others that are forthcoming. We were just, we were kind of giving you a hard time before we jumped on the air. JT and I were like, it felt like last year, and I know this isn't true, Gavin, but it felt like last year it was like, oh my gosh, Gavin Ortland has published 15 books.
2: (laughs) You know, my brother Dane actually publishes all of them, and then just uses my name as a pseudonym for some of them. So <laughs> keep that contained here.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, we, we won't. We we won't let the world know. But no, uh, this book in particular, "Finding the Right Heels to Die On," is a fantastic and a very needed book. I'll tell you, if if you are involved at all in doing. Uh, Bible study or theological engagement at a local church level, or if you spend any of your time consuming resources online on these topics, then there is something that is missing from that, and that is theological triage. And once you know what that is, you will know that many people do not know how to do it, Mm -hmm. that it is a forgotten skill set. And so let's just start there, Gavin. What is theological triage?
2: Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Kyle. And I do just want to underscore what you said, that this book is written for pastors and for Uh, small group leaders and for seminary students and for lay Christians who are interested in this. It's not an academic book. It's designed to be accessible and clear. And I do really believe in the importance of this topic, especially in our culture right now, where there's so much polarization and so much suspicion. So theological triage is just simply the effort to rank different doctrines differently. Another way to put it is just majoring on the majors. You know, not every hill is a hill to die on. We want to focus on the things that are most important. There's times to be like the book of Galatians and kind of take a stand and say, this is a gospel issue that's needed. But then there's like Romans 14 moments where you have to kind of flex and you have to adjust and you have to be more moderated and, and open-handed about things. So the book's just trying to help us think about that.
1: Now, uh, Jen, you've been writing online for a long time. I bet you have found that people are very good about ranking doctrines appropriately. Has, <laughs> been, has that been your experience as a, as a published author and as somebody who's been writing blogs online for a long time? Do you find that to be a skill that many have?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I like this. What what I feel like a lot of what Gavin is wanting to do, particularly the way that you position this, Gavin, for the for sort of the average person in the pews, which is what I love, is is it's similar to work to what I'm trying to do with Bible literacy, right? It's saying, hey, um, let's give you some critical thinking skills that are that are based in something beyond just how you feel about about what's happening around you. Um, And so I've been really thankful to see you doing this work. And I was gonna ask JT and Kyle, have you guys just been ripping off his term the whole time? Is that where you got the term? Because you've definitely been using it excessively in conversation.
3: No, this is a, this is a term, like, I think the first time I heard it, actually, Dr. Moeller had a blog about, the, this is maybe seven, eight years ago, he had a blog about theological, I was in seminary at the time. Okay. And, I, and I've got to be honest with you, the first time I heard the term, I saw its utility, I, I saw its usefulness. I did not know at the time how useful theological triage was eventually going to be to me as a pastor. I kind of was thinking about it, okay, you know, maybe I should take this class then instead because it's more important. I didn't really mm-hmm. see the the discipleship value in it, which I, which I think something that, that this book does particularly. well, even like for home groups, like when I think about how as a pastor now, I want my home group to be thinking about what topics and what doctrines should be, what should they be talking about? What should they have arguments over? What should they have unity over? This is a really important topic. The the closer you get to the ground in the local church, Mm -hmm. I think
1: yeah and, and Gavin you were mentioning how relevant it is culturally but do you also find that it's relevant like even as in your pastoral ministry there in Ohio like do you like this this benefit of theological triage maybe give us just a few of the kind of tangible benefits that that having a, a community of faith that can do this that kind of reg, can regulate itself using theological triage what what kind of benefits would that produce in the life of that
2: faith community- Yeah, it seems like most of us have a tendency one way or the other to either fight about theology too much or too little. Um, we all have a personality, we all have a temperament that we face these things with, kind of a a theological culture or attitude that we kind of carry with us. And um, what's so tricky about this is it seems as though we could make a mistake going in either direction to the extreme, you know? And so like a fundamentalist era would be fighting over everything, wanting to die on every hill. But then in the opposite direction, there's lots of people who react against that and they just want to kind of Lowest common denominator. Let's stop fighting. Let's just focus on the gospel. And so, for an actual local church to be united and to live out the gospel together, I think it's kind of essential. I mean, as yeah. the years go by, you're going to get to topics where you're going to want you're going to need to be able to live together despite differences without minimizing theology and acting like none of these things even matter. So I actually see this as kind of a a practically necessary skill set. I don't know that we have to use the term, but Mm -hmm. we need to have some kind of working way of kind of distinguishing different different doctrines. And I do want to give credit to Al Mohler. I do think, to my knowledge, he's the first one who used this term. And of course, triage is like a medical term. You know, you're ranking different injuries. So it's just a metaphor for doing that with doctrines.
1: Right, and and I think that it's uh, one of the things that becomes clear, especially whenever you start to think about uh, how churches can start to absorb the division and the polarization of the culture, is that a lot of times the ch- the church will start to divide, and there's all these sorts of like you know, you think about these stories that are often. Uh, sometimes they're kind of hyper fictionalized about churches dividing over the color of the carpet or something like that, right? But like there are, and, and we're, we're discovering in Genesis right now, even as we talk to our audience, as they listen to the show, that like there are passages in scripture that tend to be places where people might malpractice the question of ranking doctrines appropriately. So could you maybe give me an easy example of a situation where you see a failure on the part of the church or Christians to practice theological? triage? Like, is there, is there a common example that you'd feel like, Hey, this is one where it feels like this is a doctrine that oftentimes has a lot of heat attached to it. It's, it's ranked maybe too high. And because of that, it becomes a stressor in a faith community.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny. You mentioned color of carpet. (laughs) So, If people, you know how when you're doing a Google search, you type in something and you get in a lighter font, a suggested conclusion to whatever you're typing. Well, if you type in church split, the first thing that's suggested to follow that is Calvinism. The next thing is color of carpet. And I had to, I mean, of course, who knows exactly what that tells you. Uh, All it tells you is people are searching for that. But. Unfortunately, and this is where, again, this book comes out of a real practical concern of just the real honest experiences that I've had. This is kind of an on-the-ground reality. Christians do, it, it happens, you know, like churches split mm-hmm. over really small things, un- unfortunately. And like you were saying, Kyle, it seems like in our culture, we are not getting better at this. Just our, culturally, it seems as though our ability to have to court an opposing point of view respectfully and like reasonably work through the differences, that's not exactly something that our culture is pushing us towards. You know, there's, right. there's right. so much suspicion and just it, increasingly it feels like the, the mentality is that the other side on any given issue isn't just wrong, they're actually evil. So we don't right. even need to argue with them. We just need to ridicule them. And, uh, you know, that that attitude can get into the church. So I think, I mean, there's lots of examples of this. Um, in my own thinking, I, the book is not about social issues or cultural issues, like what kind of schooling choice is best for parents or how should a Christian think about consuming alcohol or those kinds of things. It's really more focused on doctrine. Some of those things can be really divisive. Um, Two areas where I've observed it would be the first things and last things. So creation and end times. Mm -hmm. And in both of those areas, there are like hills to die on, I think. Like the idea that God made the world from nothing. I mean, the early church fought for that. And that's really important that Jesus is coming again. Uh, that there'll be a final resurrection. Like that's really important. So there's areas there that are kind of those first rank issues. But there's a lot where godly Christians have disagreed. And I make the case in the book that there's many aspects of both of those areas where we need to have a more cautious approach and we don't necessarily need to divide over them.
1: Yeah. You know, I I can remember uh, there and things have since reconciled. It was a very sweet moment with an elderly person in my family. I was uh, coming out of my second year in seminary and I was, uh, I had changed something that I viewed about the last things. And I I was talking with an elderly family member and I said, you know, they were like, well, I just can't wait for the rapture. It's coming very soon. And I said, well, I'm not so sure about that. And she said, no, (laughs) she said, don't tell me you don't believe in the rapture. (laughs) Uh, She was so, so distraught, she was so sad, and I, I love this person dearly. And things are great uh, with with us. But it was such a, it was just a, such a sincere moment. Now, oftentimes, those objections and those disagreements are not done in a spirit of genuineness and sincerity. they they're, they're not, they don't come from a good place. But but what do we do, Gavin, when there is a genuine disagreement? on something. Like, so what, what is a healthy approach to that? Like, let's say, hey, I am at a church and I do come to a place of genuine theological disagreement. How do I, how do I work theological triage to gauge whether or not this issue is substantive enough to, to warrant kind of breaking fellowship with? Like, I mean, how do you make that estimation? Do you go, okay, well, it's not concerning the substance of God or the deity of Jesus or the, inspiration of scripture. So that's a first tier thing. But, but what if it is a second tier or a third tier thing? And it just feels like, man, there is a disruption here.
2: Yeah. Well, the book is, is trying to walk people through that very question. Some of the criteria that I give would be looking at the scripture. How clearly is this taught in the scripture? Looking at church history, what's been the witness of other Christians? How have other Christians faced this? Um, how is it related to the gospel? There might be something that's like really clear in the Bible, but it's kind of tangential to like the core of our faith. Um, And then another one is just how practical is it for the life of the church? There's some things that are really interesting, but they're just, they don't do much, you know, day to day. And so those are four of the questions I tend to run things through. And it's not like a formula, you know, uh, thinking about triage, this is not a theoretical exercise for seminary. This is like an on the ground practical exercise. And so I really want to emphasize that I think this can take on nuances and adjust from like one church or one context to another. Sometimes how something plays out depends upon the attitude that a view is held with. So there's a there's a kind of attitudinal dimension to this as well as just the issues themselves. And I think a lot of times what happens is someone like this is what I faced as a pastor over and over many, many sweet, wonderful, godly Christians. Uh, have grown up associating one particular view as like the biblical view and they've simply never heard of another option. Right. And Mm -hmm. so in a situation like that, to your question of what to do, I think patient humble engagement mm-hmm. and teaching yeah. and distributing resources and like how many Tim Keller articles have I looked up over the years and then <laughs> sent to people and and even like finding other if you can find like other godly Christians throughout church history that people respect and say, hey, you know, let's consider what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this or something like that. It can just help bring more categories for people. That helps people realize, okay, I can distinguish between this Uh, where Charles Spurgeon had a had a different view. And yet he's still Charles Spurgeon. And this other thing that's like in the Apostles Creed. So that's one, a couple ways we can approach it. I think that's so important, Gavin,
3: because what can happen, especially with the attitudinal thing that you just uh, mentioned, is when people, let's just say it's an end times view, they've only been taught kind of a classical dispensationalism Pre, pre-mill, pre-trip rapture view of the end times, which is a view that Christians have held over the last several hundred years that can be defended from scripture. But then you you run into the, another view that is millennialism or has a different view of the end times. What happens to people in their mind and in their hearts isn't just, okay, we disagree about end times. What happens is This person's a liberal. This person doesn't believe in biblical authority. This person isn't taking their view from scripture because my view is the biblical view. So if you can take the temperature down a little bit and like you said, kind of patiently, slowly walk with people. I mean, I've I've even heard some people say... You know, on a second, third, fourth tier issue, they'll say something like, this is actually a matter of inerrancy. If you don't hold this view, then you can't be an inerrantist. But the reality is, no, you're just, you're, it's not that you can't be an inerrantist or believe in the inspiration of scriptures. It's just, we disagree on the interpretation of the inerrant, of the inerrant text. And for some people to get them around that curve can be a little
2: challenging. Yeah, I, I can really relate to what you're saying there, JT. And and the key word for me with this book that it ends with in the conclusion and that I think is where we want to be steering ourselves and pushing our own hearts towards as well as others is the word humility. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to just theoretically affirm that like, yeah, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, I see through a glass darkly, but really I see things pretty clearly. <laughs> and we all tend to kind of... <laughs> <laughs> just assume that I, you know, I, I basically see how it is. But just the humility to say, I genuinely have blind spots. I do not know what they are. I need to listen to other people to learn. And that helps us embrace what you're saying, which is the distinction between the text of Scripture and my interpretation of Scripture. And not just assuming that my interpretation is always going to have the same level of authority and be just as as clear. So that's, that's a way I try to shepherd people in these conversations and then shepherd my own heart because it's easy to, yeah. for any of us to fall into that.
1: Hey, Gavin, so one of the questions that um, I hear whenever I talk to Catholic friends um, is, hey, this whole question over appropriately ranking doctrines and settling disagreements and disputes, this is really a mess of your own making as Protestants. Like when you guys stepped away from... Uh, the church in Rome, you created this mess by schisms and uh, these different sects that emerged. And now you don't have any consensus. You don't have anything to measure uh, unity around because you're essentially from the foundation of your movement, you've basically embraced a kind of doctrinal sectarianism that like is just kept evolving and evolving. And and I'm sympathetic when I hear that because when you look at the history of, you know, Pr- Protestantism and the free church movement, that is definitely one of the struggles is like this kind of doctrinal separatism uh, that is, is allowable in a Protestant model. But how do you, how would you respond? I know you, I know you've engaged in some Protestant Catholic dialogues. What would you say to somebody who says, well, this is kind of, this is a essential aspect of what it means to be Protestant is you just don't get to enjoy doctrinal consensus and knowing where to properly rank things.
2: Yeah. You know, I've had a lot of friends who've converted to Roman Catholicism uh, in recent years. And I have been, as you mentioned, on, on YouTube, being, doing some debates and, and dialogues with Roman Catholic friends. Uh, just in re- So this is right where my mind has been at. And I've thought about this. Like, how would a, a, a Catholic friend even, what would they even think about this whole idea of triage? And I think I like to try to start by owning that criticism as much as we can and acknowledge yeah, Protestants have been too divisive. It's a major problem. The, um, and actually, this is a value that I've always had, but it actually came into my heart more while I was writing this book of just the unity of the body of Christ is so important. I mean, that is not that's that's a first rank issue that we should be willing to die for. I mean, you know, the way I put it in the book at one point is if we're not sacrificing for this, like think of Paul saying, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. If we're not bending, if we're not taking hits, and and if, if it's not costly, we're probably not doing enough to try to fight for unity. But there's more to it than that, of course. And I would say, you know, just briefly, a few thoughts. One was that I don't see actually the Roman Catholic Church as having total unity because, yes, there's a central teaching authority. But on wow. things that are not dogmatized, there are they're going to be doing triage on anything outside of the dogmas because mm-hmm. um, there is there are lots of different views on lots of different issues. So I don't actually think that a Catholic would be against yeah. triage totally. I think it would be against it as it plays out. Denominationally. And I would say um, Protestants, and this is one of the great uh, burdens on my heart in some of my other works, is that Protestants can and should look to church history. The distinction I would make is not between, well, Catholics are kind of a part of this huge tradition and Protestants are just looking to Scripture. I would put it more like this that Protestants are looking to the church universal. And we do, you know, we function in that tradition, um, although Scripture is our highest authority. But it's not the Roman Catholic magisterium. That's not our authority. So um, there's a lot more to say about all this. I do think a Protestant view can be defended um, biblically and historically. But those that would be just kind of a, a brief set of thoughts about this.
3: Hey, just a quick note in terms of a resource for that. Uh, if people are interested in that question, there's a there's a fairly good book by Kevin Van Hooser called Biblical Authority After Babel, where he's addressing this question in particular of a Catholic critique of the Protestant Reformation and kind of interpretive pluralism and how, how do we ever get to a point of You know, lowercase c, Catholicity again. The book isn't, I, Kevin Van Hooser is one of my favorite theologians. This is not one of my favorite books he wrote. It's a good book, but it's, uh, it's an important question if people are looking for a resource. It's
0: good. Gavin, nobody just decides maybe they'll sit down and write a book about something. I'm sure that there's an autobiographical aspect to why you wanted to write this book. And I would imagine you even were bumping into some of the same issues over and over again that made this book top of mind for you. So I'd just really be curious to hear. Um, what were the issues that you kept seeing surface what was the emphasis between even sitting down and trying to write something that would be helpful to the average learner
2: yeah a a lot of what stands behind the book for me is just my own journey uh, of growing up in a presbyterian context and absolutely loving that context there was nothing that i was i was trying to get away from um i had uh, I went to a Presbyterian seminary that was, you know, when Esther and I my wife and I think about what kind of culture we want to see in our ministry, we often talk about a Covenant seminary ethos because we just loved our time at Covenant. It was so healthy and so gospel-centered, so uh, very much miss that world in many ways, but I just theologically landed out as a Baptist, and so... Uh, <laughs> Inconveniently. You take the ordinances seriously. Yeah.
1: <laughs> in- inconvenient. I, love, I love that. Inconveniently Baptist. <laughs> That's how yeah, I feel too. Because I
2: wasn't looking to change. And it isn't. It's hard. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for people working through like a denominational change like that because it's painful. Because, uh, you know, there it's painful on, on several different levels. But um, And then once I sort of, and I talk about this in chapter three of the book, I kind of tell my story. But once I landed out okay, and now I'm in the world of like Credo Baptists, where do I fit in? I found out there's lots of other issues that kind of come up. And I've mentioned mm-hmm. some of those already where I was sort of on record for certain views about creation and certain views about the end times. I guess I can just name them. <laughs> so like I'm <laughs> uh, I'm a millennial. So, you know, and then I'm not a young earth creationist and that I've written on that. I don't really bring that stuff up, but it's been more than one occasion where, an opportunity for ministry or relationship in some way has been impeded by mm-hmm. what I've written on those things. And I've just reflected upon that a lot in terms of, should that be the case? And, and if it is the case, how do we best arrive upon that conclusion and then work through that? And at times it just seems as though there's these issues that um, are unnecessarily divisive. And so that's part of what is the heart that's kind of behind the book. Devin, if you could, so we've been, we've
1: been covering Genesis and you just kind of, you, you've brought, you talked about your view on creation. And so there, there would be some who, when they hear uh, your view on creation
2: would be like, he's out. Mm-hmm.
0: But just some, not a lot, just right. some.
2: <laughs> and they're not loud at all. No. And they'll, and they'll leave plenty of blog comments on my blog. No,
1: Mm-mm, for uh-huh. sure. So like, um, uh, let's ima- let's just imagine that uh, that you're having a conversation with somebody and 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 from the vantage point of of your position and they're taking issue with you and they're essentially saying um, what they're saying hey I, Gavin you don't take the Bible seriously it says seven days it you know it you know uh, the the timeline shows six thousand years Gavin this is really a problem with you not taking the Bible seriously and let's imagine that, that theological triage is maybe not in their vocabulary uh maybe, uh, but, and they're talking as if they're talking in a way that maybe signals to you that for them, this is a keystone issue. It's, this is a make or break, which for, in your mind probably is, that means it's, it's out of alignment. It's, it's out of proportion. So how would you talk to somebody like that? They're taking issue with a position you have and you feel like I have an opportunity here to faithfully communicate what I believe from the witness of scripture, but also you have the opportunity to try to help de escalate it through helping them see hey, there's a way to think about doctrines in terms of where they're ranked at how would you maybe navigate a conversation like that? Because I think that is probably a very likely conversation for many listeners to this show, Mm -hmm. that they are going to come to a place where they are on one side of the table with somebody that they disagree with about some matter of the Christian story or Christian belief, and they're either going to be receiving that disagreement Uh, maybe as a teacher or as a ministry leader or as a writer, or they're going to be offering that disagreement. Maybe playing out that scenario could be helpful for them getting a sense of how to have that conversation in a way that's healthy and holy and builds up the church.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking about that. And I have had lots of conversations like this and, uh, you know, the book, comes out of a desire to be helpful. I, I try not to come at it from a personal angle. So it, it, I realize in my, after my last answer, I want to make clear that this book isn't written from my own kind of ish pet issues. It's really trying. In fact, I, I, I'm sure I'm wrong on some of the things I, I believe that I talk about in the book. The main hope for the book is that it would be helpful for others and in, in, in the principles of what they're thinking through. But on this issue of just how I'd play through a conversation like this, I think the first thing is to humble myself before for the conversation and not act like, well, I've, I've got the answer and I need to steer the other person some way, but to listen. What are their concerns? Uh, those concerns need to be taken seriously. And there, a lot of times the concerns are kind of hermeneutical concerns about like a slippery slope, you know? Well, yeah. that's a valid concern. That, that should not be minimized. That should not be sw- swept away. So I, I try to like say like, this is important and, and approach the conversation in, a, in that frame. And then I just try to walk through kind of my, in my own testimony, kind of how I've thought through this issue, why I changed, what's been influential for me and say, you know, can I just share with you? So going back to those four criteria we, criteria we had, um, let's talk about church history and let's talk about, and this is where one of my books on Augustine has been so helpful for me Augustine, um, he he predates all the modern scientific discoveries that have been influential uh, in making us think about the age of the world. Mm -hmm. And and yet, so he's 1,500 years before the scientific revolution, and yet he didn't read Genesis 1 as talking about 24-hour periods of time. And there were three key reasons in Genesis 1 for why he did that. And that was so helpful for me because it's like I can't accuse Augustine of a bias Toward, right you know, <laughs> um he's not caving in to the pressure you know he was a yeah. man before capitulating
0: to the culture right. yeah and he
2: wasn't one to 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 do that in general anyway so he yeah. right, um, right so but so then i talk through those things and i talk about you know the different uses of the term day in that passage and the the sequence of events and like where's the light coming from on days 1 through 3 and what does it mean that god is resting And um, how is there no shrub yet in Genesis 2, 4? And these other things that Augustine genuinely had angst about. And you can see him Mm -hmm. in his commentary. He's writing his commentary. He's like going back and forth and he's really upset trying to figure out these details. It's kind of funny actually to imagine him writing that, pulling out his hair and kind of getting stressed about how to read this passage. But like, okay, so then the appeal is like this. Okay, we've got the greatest church father, the most influential theologian in all of church history, Mm -hmm. agonizing how to interpret this passage. That fact alone, whatever else he said, like should help us appreciate this isn't so simple. This mm-hmm. is really complicated. And then I like to draw attention to really conservative fundamentalist types in the modern era who don't read it as 24 hour days and say, this is not always liberals who end up on this side. This is like B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen and, and uh, Charles Spurgeon and people like that. And sometimes... Sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes <laughs> that can create a little space, you know, right. and, and kind of, okay, well, let's work with the, these details in the text and try to, and try to work on it. So that's a little bit about how I approach that conversation. I think that's
1: really helpful. Mm-hmm. I think that just uh, that reminder, sometimes whenever I'm having a conversation with somebody that it maybe it's just, we're, we're talking about doctrine or uh, something that came up in a sermon or or in a blog post or whatever, and, and we're talking, I'll often say, hey, let's begin with this. It's really not as simple as it appears to be. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's a lot more complicated than it looks for you, not just for you. Like I'm not saying I get it and you don't. I'm just saying this is, If I I pulled five books off the shelf over there about this passage, I probably would get five different angles on a faithful response to it. And I do think you're right, Gavin, that can kind of just cool temperatures in the room to just help realize like, yeah, you know what? This is maybe not as clear as it seems. Some things in scripture are clear and we have to defend their clarity with a lot of boldness and courage, but there are many things that are not clear. Uh, to us. And it's not a fault of God's word or God's revelation of himself, but a fault of our understanding.
2: That's right. And just a quick uh, comment on that. That's something that's been helpful for me is just the appeal to humility that we, I think we mentioned earlier and listening. Somebody once Mm -hmm. said to me, and I always think about this, we're not really listening unless we're willing to be changed by what we hear. Mm -hmm. And so engaging in these conversations where we have differences, really genuinely open hearted. And I try to do that too. Like maybe I'll change, maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll see this is more important, you know, genuinely listening like that. I think, you know, I did a number of interviews with pastors to prepare for this book because I wanted it to be sensitive to like the real things people are wrestling with and not just go by my own experiences. One of the pastors said to me that whenever there are theological differences that came up in his church, what makes the difference is humility. Even if it's a really important issue and there's disagreements about it, um, Mm -hmm. if it's approached with humility and with listening, it can be productive and it can lead to course correction. It can lead to change. But even the tiniest thing can become a major problem if there's not humility. That's right. That
1: is good. That's good. Listen, I want to really commend to you this book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. It is well worth picking up. It is a great book. It's really well written and it'll be a great introduction to what Gavin's other work is. And on top of that, I promise you, you'll be blessed by it as you develop this skill of theological triage. If you want to find out more information about Gavin, uh, you can find Gavin online. He's on Twitter uh, and he's also on YouTube at uh, Truth Unites. Uh, and uh, I would really encourage you to check that out. Um, Um, And if you want to find out more information about us, you can find us. We're at Knowing Faith Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and on Patreon. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.